Uh, we are diving in. We're in week two of a series called Soul Keeping In, and uh, hopefully you were with us last week. If not, you can absolutely uh, recap um, online, but uh, this is a different series for me. Um, this is absolutely ripped from a, uh, a book that rocked my world about a year ago uh, called Soul Keeping by John Ortberg, and so I unashamedly borrow from uh, the text within the book for this series. But ultimately, what jumped out and caught my heart as I read this was there is a part of us that we acknowledge that's called the soul. And we recognize that the soul is a thing. We know there's a soul because we use it as an adjective when we talk about food and we talk about soul food. When we talk about cooking and we talk about soul cooking, we talk about music and we talk about soul music. Um, you know, when an airline pilot gets the final head count, he says there's 236 souls on board. We know the soul is a thing. We understand ultimately that we're more than just a self because none of us look for our self-mate. We all wanted to marry our soulmate. And so we know there's deeper layers to who we are than just our self. We know that we're a soul. The scripture tells us that the Lord God took earth and he formed it and then he breathed his breath into the man, and the man became a living soul. So we know we're more than the dirt that we were when God began to form us. We know there's something inside us that's greater than that. And last week, we walked through uh, the elements and the part of, a, of, of all of what makes us a soul. And so for the next several weeks, we're gonna talk about this fact that though we understand that we are a soul, that we have a soul and we are a soul, we have to know then what does a soul require? What does it need? When our car needs maintenance, a danger light shows up. And then we go and we plug it into the computer if it's a newer car or we take it to a guy because that's what we have to do. And they tell us what's wrong with it and here's the prescription and what it needs. But when our soul's in need, what do we do? And so we're walking through that. And so the next several weeks, we'll be talking about things that our soul needs. And this week, we're going to dive off into some deep waters, and then we'll, get, uh, we'll climb out of the deep waters over the next several weeks. But we're going to talk about this just reality that our soul needs a center. It needs a center. It needs a true north. It needs a uh, consistency and healthiness. And, you know, as I was studying, I read, a, I read a funny story this week. It was a story about a dad. And this dad was kind of a, a chronic complainer. Any of you know chronic complainers? Everything's just not quite as good as it could be. And he was grumpy. My job's not as good as it could be. My life and my house is not as good as it could be. He was just kind of a chronic complainer. And the family's routine went something like this. He'd come home from work, take off his jacket and get, get comfortable, and mom would get food going. And, and so as food started to get close to the table, he would sit at the table. And that would kind of be the moment when the complaining would start. And he'd start talking about his day and John at work and Susan at work and, you know, the traffic and all the things coming out. Now, sometimes when he was having a particularly bad day, he'd even complain about the food that was being served. I know. I, too, think he's crazy. And he'd complain and complain. But one thing he'd get right. Before the food was actually consumed, the family would join hands and they would say grace and he would lead grace and he would start off with, God, I'm so thankful for this food that you've provided and just pray that you would bless it to our bodies. And some form of that language, he would say amen. Well, after one particularly rough complaining session and followed up by prayer, his young daughter turned to him and said, Dad, do you, do you think God hears us when we pray? 
Now, this caught his attention because he was just getting ready to complain about the next thing, and he lit up for a second, and he thought, wow, my little girl is actually asking spiritual questions. So he puffed his chest a little, and he said, yes, honey, I believe that God hears us when we pray, and you can pray, and God can hear you. She smiled, and she went to begin to eat her food. Then she kind of shook her head for a second, looked up, and she goes, Dad, do you think God hears us all the time? And he smiled and he thought, look how deep my young daughter is going into this conversation about spiritual things. And he says, why, yes, sweetheart, I believe that God is everywhere and sees everything and hears everything. And you can talk to God at any time and he knows everything you say. And this time she frowned. She didn't smile. And he thought, what's the matter, sweetheart? She said, well, if God hears us all the time and he hears us when we pray, which one does God believe? Which one does God believe? My heart sunk as I read that, and I thought, man, that's a, it's a fun story, and it's a funny story, and it's ironic, but it's true. If God's with us all the time, and he sees everything we do, and he hears all of our outward expressions, and even our inner voice, and then we go to talk to God, and our language with him is different than our language all week long, then which one does God believe? Which one do you believe? And who is the real you? As we dive into this idea of our soul needing a center, a true north, consistency, I was challenged thinking about all the ways I'm inconsistent in my life. If I'm honest, probably one of the ways I'm the most inconsistent is how I argue, she's not in the room, with my wife. <laughs> she was in the room earlier. But it's true, and you know what happens to me? Maybe I'm the only one that does this. I get frustrated Something happens. We're not on the same page. We miscommunicate, swing and a miss, and something swells up in me. And though I don't outwardly express how frustrated I really am, I subtly begin to change my behavior towards her. I'm not as warm. I'm not as kind. I'm not as thoughtful. I intentionally allow some pain to happen that I could have prevented. I just disengage in pieces as we wait to reconcile, even sometimes I test and throw lines out there to see if she'll pick up the vibe. And if she doesn't, what's wrong with her? It's a fascinating but honest reality. I'm just being honest with you guys. Maybe I'm the only one. And suddenly I become aware of these two competing thoughts inside my heart. One, I'm a good person and I love my wife. And two, I want to inflict pain and hurt her. Both things happening at one time inside of me. You see, that kind of divisiveness wounds and fractures and harms and disintegrates our soul. Living with two lines of thought. I'm a good person and I still want to inflict this pain. And trying to justify both of those things as true, although they're not compatible, are the kinds of things that wants to fracture and separate our soul. Now, we do this in other degrees. It's not always incompatible with our wife. We do this other ways. Sometimes we're not entirely honest. And we think, oh, that's just a small lie. 
It's just a small deception. It's a, that deception is a kindness to be not honest, but that we still hold this truth in us that believing that we are in fact honest, knowing that we've been dishonest. Maybe we've cheated on our taxes, but bam. And we thought, ah, oh, I paid enough and it's not that big a deal. And I'm mostly, most of the time, I tell the truth, I'm honest. <laughs> Maybe uh, I stiff on the tip. Yet I hold this same thought in my head. You know, I'm really generous. I'm usually generous. Most of the time I'm generous, but this time, just not that generous. What happens? It begins to disintegrate us. I thought about going here. Sometimes I rob from God, but then I say I trust God. Sometimes I withhold my best from God, and then I say, but I trust you, God. But you don't want to talk about that. Not today. <laughs> but that's what sin does in us. Sin is the thing that disintegrates us. It's the lie we tell ourselves to justify our rebellion and walking away from God's best for us. And that has one of the moves of the enemy of our soul since the beginning of time. To convince us that we don't have to trust God, live like God, walk with God. We can do this on our own, yet we can still do that and honor God and fall into the will of God. And so we find ourselves with this tension. What does it? What is that thing in us that is sin? Now, last week I showed you this graphic about our, our soul and who we are. Let me bring this up here. And we talked about all the parts of us that make us go, that we're spirit, that we have a will, we have a desire. I wanna get up in the morning and go exercise. Yes, that's our will. It wants things, it wants things, but it's limited. It doesn't have the ability to just make that happen unless the other parts of our body are working in harmony. We talked about our mind, how we have to think and engage and use our mind and that our mind dictates our destiny, tells us where we're going to go, that a lot of the battle is in our mind. The enemy often attacks us at this point, right? Our mind goes, well, if I get up, I'm gonna be tired, I'm gonna be grumpy, I'm gonna lay it, this is not gonna work. And we start dwelling on things and a lot of the attack comes in our mind. And we have a body, our body powers this thing. It's the engine, it's what makes things go. And there's a thing that the scriptures make so clear to us, Oftentimes our spirit, our want to, our will is willing, but our body doesn't want to do it. Our body's weak and we have to get our body in alignment. We have relationships. We're relational beings. I know I'm the son of Laura Pagan, Allison. I know my identity because of who my family and closest relationships are. I know my people are and I know who I am because I bounce off people God created and put into my life and it tells me about who I am. And when all of those things are operating and functioning, the river that flows through all of those things and channels that energy in a way that, that it becomes who I am is our soul. All of that makes us up. That's who we are when God breathed life into us. The problem is that gets broken apart and it looks like this. And that space, that gap, that thing that drives a wedge into us, that is what sin wants to do to us. Sin wants to teach us to compartmentalize ourselves. Now we think of compartmentalizing as a strength, right? I can put this on the shelf and just work on this. I'll just stop thinking about this and I'll do this. What sin wants to train us to do is say, these things are not connected. 
You can do this behavior and it's not gonna affect how you think, your will, your body, your relationships. It wants you to hold two competing thoughts in your head and try to justify that both of those things can exist at the same time and that your soul can be healthy. And what happens when that happens to us is we become disintegrated. Our soul is the thing that wants to hold us together, to get all of us moving in one direction in relationship with God. And sin is actively working against us. Now I'm using big words like sin. Hopefully this has made sense to you so far. This rebellion from our conscience, from what we know is right, from what God's revealed about his nature, when we do that, it begins to put a weight on us. And you know this is true. You feel the weight that moment when you have to make a decision and you know you're making the wrong decision. And there's like a weight that you feel there. There's like a pressure on your soul. The scripture calls that the kavar of God. It's the Hebrew term for that. And it talks about the weight of the spirit of the Lord in our lives. It's actually like a military term, like an armament. And it talks about when you've kind of girded on and put on the weight of God. And we feel that when we start to disintegrate, when we start to make decisions to run from the plan of God, the purpose of God, the will of God, the correct identity of God in our lives. You see, sin disintegrates our soul. So as I thought about how to teach this in a way that makes sense, the only story I kept coming back to, and a couple years ago I taught through Samson, but we're gonna jump in today again in, uh, in the book of uh, Judges. You can jump to chapter 13, 14 if you're following with me, and I'm gonna take us through this. But Samson was an amazing example of a disintegrated soul. There was something going on with him that did not make sense. It was not consistent. And so I wanna just look at what happens to us when we begin to do this. So this can make sense for all of us today. Sin wants us to believe two competing things can be true at the same time. Yet our soul knows that is not the case. So who's Samson? You guys know Samson. Samson is an incredible story. It's an incredible person in history. I know for my whole life, I always thought of Samson as this ginormous buff like the rock. Do you smell what Samson's cooking, right? The guy that could just flex and then buttons would just pop off of his shirt. It was a fascinating thing when I started reading through the scriptures looking for a description of Samson. Because when I think of Samson, if I asked you all to just draw a picture of Samson right now, likely you would draw a picture of me just with hair. <laughs> I'm saying. <laughs> Big, ripped, beautiful, all those things. But we don't see a picture of Samson throughout the whole scripture. He's never described physically. But you know what is described about him? What is described about him is time and time again, the enemies of Samson says, where does your strength come from? They are shocked and surprised at his strength. They cannot figure out what is the, show us the secret of your strength. And we know that Samson was incredibly strong, but we also know that it came as a radical surprise. So it doesn't make sense to me to assume that Samson looked like the rock. He likely was not physically imposing because they wouldn't have been shocked at the power that he displayed time and time again. But Samson is an incredible story and it's an incredible time in the history of the world and especially of the Israelite people, God's chosen people when Samson shows up. 
At this time, they, it's the book of Judges, which precedes the time of the kings, and there hasn't been the first king of Israel yet. And Israel is a, is a nomadic people who is loyal and, and relationally connected to God, who's been led out of slavery and given the promised land and begun to inhabit the land. And there's this cycle of behavior that happens when the people of God leave the presence of God and miss the power of God, and then eventually find the pain that happens when you've left the presence and the power of God, and that pain drives them back into the presence of God so they can re-experience the power of God and they can experience the freedom that comes from being in the power in the hands of God and then they get comfortable and they leave the presence of God again and behave differently and then in comes an outside force that creates pain in their life and they have enough pain they cry out again for the presence of God the presence of God shows up because he's faithful even when we're faithless and we see this cycle over and over and over again and that's the book of Judges. So in one of these cycles, the people have left the presence of God. Because they've left the presence of God, they're not experiencing the power of God. And in comes this strange people, the Philistines. And up until this point, we don't know much about the Philistines. We know David fights them later on. We know Goliath is a Philistine. But they haven't been on the scene too much before this point because they're not from around here. They're seafaring people. They're Greek They come from Greece originally, and they're technologically advanced compared to the Israelites at this point. As a matter of fact, they are actually making iron weapons in the Bronze Age that when, when, when most of the Israelites are, have, have softer bronze weapons, in come the Philistines, and they have iron stronger weapons, stronger technology. They're a seafaring people. They're nautical. They're militarily, uh, 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 strategically sharp. They're great at trading. As a matter of fact, they have an incredible success at bartering and trading in the olive business and in the grape business, which if you know the grape business, you know I'm talking about the wine business. And because of that, they're incredibly successful. Uh, Militarily, they're successful. Economically, they're successful. And they present a very unique challenge to the Israelites. You see, the other groups that came in, they just wanted what the Israelites had. They came in and said, hey, this land produces crops. We're taking this land and we're taking the food and we're kicking you out. We're killing you. We're attacking you. The Philistines didn't have that strategy. Their strategy was, hey, Look how much better it is on our side of the fence. We have technology. We got better booze. Like we're just, we have a better culture than your culture. So we're going to just come in and let's just merge our culture with your culture. And you can serve your God and our God. You can can have all of the things that your God says that you're supposed to have, but you can drink and party and play and do all of the things that our culture does. You can do both things at once. Awesome. Do you see the danger that the Philistines presented? They didn't come in and said, we're going to wipe you out, take your land, take your crops. They didn't want that. They just wanted to live, integrate, intermarry, dilute the people of God, the plan of God, the will of God, and say, you can do both. You can have your cake and we'll eat it with you. Awesome. Now, this was one of the most unique challenges in the history of the Israelite people up till this point. Because they don't feel the kind of oppression that they felt when they couldn't eat because the Midianites came in and burned up all their crops. It's not the same problem. Instead, they go, ah, this isn't really the will of God. 
but free beer, right? They're having this just, ah, problem. And so we see that they began to walk away from God. They began to leave uh, the heart and the promises of God. Judges 13.1 says, And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years. 40 years of merging their culture together. Now, it's fascinating that it was 40 years. That really jumped off the page to me this past week because I was thinking about this is the same group of people who in their history, the last time that they clearly rebelled from the Lord, they wandered in the desert for how long? 40 years. And here they are leaving the hand of the Lord behind, disintegrating from the will of God, and God hands them over to this outside influence, and they merge culture and merge life and try to say, we're going to live for God, but we're also going to live a carnal, party, crazy life at the same time, and 40 years goes by. And why is 40 years significant? Because 40 years throughout the scriptures always represents an entire generation goes by. A whole generation goes by. An entire generation gets comfortable, whoo, this is good, gets comfortable living the lie. And the Lord starts looking around and says, who am I going to raise up to remind the people of God that you can't live a lie? It's not a true relationship with me if you think you can have a relationship with me and have a completely separate life from me and just do those things simultaneously. It doesn't work that way. So he wants to raise up a champion to represent that. At the same time, there's a couple of parents, the eventual parents of Samson, who can't have a child. So God initiates an incredible plan. He sends an angel to meet Samson's mom and says, hey, you're going to have a baby. She's like, we can't have a kid. He's like, you're going to have a baby. But here's what's going to be special about your baby. He's going to start the deliverance of the people of God from the Philistines. And in order to do that, I need this particular person to be a person who clearly represents leaving one culture, one world behind and embracing their faith and being separated to me. So you have back in numbers initiated that there is a type of vow that you can take, a Nazarite vow, you've heard of this, a Nazarite vow that says, for a season, I'm going to be separated from the world and put more energy and more effort into my relationship with God. And as I do that, there's gonna be outward things so that people can recognize that's what I'm doing. And of those outward things, there's three primary things. Thing number one is you're not gonna cut your hair for that whole season. You're gonna be scraggly, longer haired, um, you know, it's not gonna, it, like that part of not taking care of that piece is just gonna let people know, hey, you're separated for a season for God. The other part of that, this is a big piece, you're not gonna mess with booze for that season. No alcohol. Now, this is incredibly important in a season where the, the culture has embraced that as one of the primary outlets. It says you're not gonna mess with that. And the last piece is you're not gonna touch dead animals, dead people, dead bodies, no dead things. You're going to remain in a state of purity by not interacting with those things. And so he talks to, this angel talks to Samson's mom. I'm in first, uh, Judges 13. I'm just paraphrasing for you. And you could follow along and see if I'm lying. The angel talks to Samson's mom and says, as a matter of fact, so that your child knows that this is going to be not just a vow for a season, but for their whole life, I want you, mom, to right now begin living basically this way so that he can point back and say, from the womb, 
from conception. Come on, you don't think there's life in the womb? From the womb, his destiny will already be established from the womb. So Samson is born. His hair never gets cut, no booze, no dead bodies. He lives as a young man with his mom and dad and experiences this separation, long-haired Jewish boy, experiences this destiny that his parents have told him, hey, an angel showed up and said, you are gonna begin the deliverance of Israel. It's gonna be awesome. But you have to stay separated from the world. With that premise, we meet Samson. And you get to Judges chapter 14. And we see the first interaction that Samson has kind of with the real world. He's a young man at this point. And in Judges chapter 14, verse 1, look what he does. It says, he went down to Timnah, which is a Philistine city. And there he saw a young Philistine woman. He's a young Hebrew boy. It says, when he returned. Now, I love this. He didn't talk to her. But he's like, I'm swiping. What is way is it, right? I'm swiping right. <laughs> Some of you know what that is, and that's funny. He saw there a young Philistine woman, and when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a young Philistine woman. She's hot. Well, I'm paraphrasing. And Timna, now go get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among all your relatives or among all of our people? Now remember, Samson specifically, God said, you're going to be separated. You're gonna be specifically integrated into this lane, faithful to God, loyal to God, and the promises of God. It wasn't forbidden for him to marry a Philistine woman, but his parents recognized that this was a danger potentially for him. Isn't there someone acceptable in our own people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? He's saying, must you go to those people who don't follow God, who aren't under the promises of God, who don't live according to the laws of God, who aren't embracing the culture and the heart of God, who are trying to get us to divide our culture away from God. And he says, can't you choose someone not like that? And Samson says, she's hot. She must be the right one for me. What do we see? At a very early age, although the outward signs of I'm going to be a person who stands up for God are there, on the inside, there's some cracks. On the inside, there's a different line of thinking. And the line of thinking looks a little bit like this. I hear you, God. I know this is important, but this is what I really want. So I'm gonna get that. And we're going to try to do both simultaneously at the same time. Let me paraphrase the story for you because it goes on and on over the next three chapters. Things don't go well with Samson and his wife. This is not Delilah, by the way. Many of you know Samson and Delilah. This is Samson as a young man. This is 20 years before Delilah, the scripture tells us. He goes and he marries this young Philistine woman and at the party, there's a riddle. It gets complicated. He's uh, trying to show off his wit and his might. She undermines him and betrays his trust so that he loses the battle of wits with his friends. He's embarrassed and because he's embarrassed, he takes out his revenge in a way that's just crazy and unhealthy, but you can read about it. He kills 30 people and takes their clothes and brings them to pay off his bet. 
At the end of that, he's disappointed because he began to give his heart away to someone who didn't have the same values as him, who didn't care for the same God as he did, who didn't align with him, and it didn't work out. So he leaves her there, although he loves her, because he's got to cool his jets. And he goes back and stays with mom and dad. After a season of staying with mom and dad, he's kind of recovered. His ego had been bruised, and he goes, I'm going to go back to my wife now. We're going to give this another shot because she's hot. And I love her. He goes back, and as he shows up to his wife's family, chapter 15, verse 2, he has this interaction with her father. He shows up. He's like, hey, where's my bride? And his father says, her father says, I was so sure that you thoroughly hated her that I gave her to your friend. Gentlemen, let's have a conversation for just a second. You love a woman. You love her so much that when she betrays your trust just a little bit, it sends you on a murdering rampage that you got to cool your jets from for a while. And you come back to restore that relationship, and now she's hooked up with your friend. I just want you to process that a little bit. The male ego cannot handle that kind of information, cannot process that very well. We don't do well with that, guys. We know this. So dad, recognizing the danger, it's like, hey, isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, listen to this language. This time, I have a right to get even with them. Hmm. Two competing thoughts in your soul. I'm good. I stand for the Lord. I'm an example of a relationship with God. I am to be kind of a, an outward expression of an inward vow in my heart that's going to last my whole life to be loyal to God, to serve God, to live for God, to show what it looks like to be a person after uh, God's heart. I'm going to be that. I'm a Nazarite. But he goes, ah, now I have an excuse to really get them. How many of the worst decisions you ever made, at some point along the journey, there was a moment where you're like, oh, they done messed up now. I got them now. This time, they went too far. This time, they said the thing they shouldn't have said, and now I have a right to unload and do the thing I wanted to do or say the thing. Now I'm really going to give vent to my anger, to my wrath. I'm going to get creative. He says, I will really harm them. And this becomes a theme in his life. You can jump down to verse seven. They, uh, they take the life of his bride, wipe her out because of his revenge. They're so mad, she gets killed. And verse seven, he says, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. There's no stopping me now. This is a person who was intended to be set apart, to have the heart, and to be the living kind of incarnation of what it looks like to be separated from God. So much so that it was important that he started the process in the womb. All the way through his life. And as a young man, something happens. He begins to be divided and have division. And begins to start to think, I can do that. I can represent someone who's loving God, who's living for God. But I can still behave this way. I can still go after whatever I see, whatever I want because it makes me happy, it's okay for me. Must be okay for me. 
Fast forward 20 years. 20 years goes by and Samson, through the course of 20 years, is ruling now in Israel. He's been so successful at taking his vengeance out on the Philistines. He's kind of kept them suppressed and at bay, although they've still integrated with God's people. They don't have the power and the presence because Samson is constantly there to fight them, to battle them. And we see time and time again that the power and the spirit of God's with Samson to accomplish this mission. He's actually experiencing, this is incredible, he's experiencing the power of God and the presence of God, and he's still living a dual life. God can't not be faithful. Sometimes you wonder, you're like, this person's had so much success. How is it possible that they have this other hidden life? How is it possible? I trusted this person. I saw all the outward things, the evidences. How could it possibly be possible that they were still stealing from the company all the time or cheating all the time? And Samson's a perfect example of God still accomplishing his perfect will here on earth with imperfect people. So fast forward 20 years. Samson's now known for partying like the Philistines. You know that whole don't drink thing? That's not a thing for him anymore. That whole don't touch a dead body, that was about a thousand dead Philistines ago. He's not that guy. However, he's still got luscious locks because if you can grow it out, fellas, do it. Do it for me. <laughs> He's still got luscious locks. He's flipping his hair. Come on, just one time I want to be at the party. Just, <clears throat> snap it back. Come on, Jesus. <laughs> and as a result of this life, Samson still experienced the power of God. And they don't know where his strength comes from. He's hanging out with beautiful women. He's Here's the thing. People think Delilah was an issue because Delilah was so beautiful. His whole life, he's chased after beautiful women and received them and received their attention. Something about Delilah harkened back to 20 years previously. Something about Delilah tapped into a weakness that was exposed in him as a young man that never got dealt with. This idea that he could have two lives and be fulfilled in that. And he meets Delilah and he likes her. And he begins to give his heart to her. And she's a Philistine woman. And so her Philistine friends and, and, and leaders come to her and say, hey, we'll pay you if you can help us subdue this man and get him out of the picture. Because with him out of the picture, there's nothing that would stop us from fully corrupting the people of God. So she hatches a plot. And you could read through the story. I'm going to paraphrase because it's so much, but I'll get us to the key point. She begins to test him and just say, hey, how, how come you're so strong? How would it look for someone like me to overpower someone like you? And he laughs and he makes up a story. He says, I gotta be tied with seven bowstrings. That's the secret of my strength. And so she ties him up with seven bowstrings and in rush her friends to capture him, right? Then he Hulk Hogan's it and he's like, and he breaks out and slaps him around, sends him off. And then he goes back to her. And he's hanging out. Why? Because he's got two lines of thinking in his life. I can live for God and I can be with something that wants to destroy me. Three times he does this dance with her. And then finally in Judges chapter 16, verse 15, this interaction happens. Delilah, she says to him, Chapter 16, verse 15. 
she says to him, how can you say I love you when your heart's not with me? Remember the parts of our soul? She says, I got your body, but I clearly don't have your will. You're clearly not under my control. You surrendered your body to me, but I want control of you. If you really loved me, you'd surrender your will to me. You'd do what I want. You've deceived me these three times. You won't tell me where your great strength comes from. Look at verse 16. You should underline this. It came about that when she pressed him daily with her words, and she urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. Wow. She leaned into breaking him over the coals, picking at his identity, pulling apart his, are you, you're trying to live for God, but you're sleeping with me. Why don't you just give that up and give yourself to me? You're trying to stand up for the Lord, but you're embracing my culture, not his culture. Why are you living a double standard? Why don't you just embrace my culture? Why don't you just admit that you want this more than you want that? Why? And he's finally like, fine. That's the power of sin. That's the work of the enemy in our life to get us to finally just come to terms and say, fine. I'm going to stop giving my heart to God. I'm going to stop trusting God. I'm going to stop trying to live for God. And I'm just going to embrace myself and what I want on my own. His soul was annoyed to death. Look at verse 17. So he told her all that was in his heart. You know how this story goes. He tells her about his hair. And I think we think that he lost his power when his hair got cut off. But I'm not sure that's the truth. Because if breaking the vow would lose his power, he should have lost the power when he drank a beer. He should have lost his power when he touched a dead body. If breaking the vow would have, would have broken that, he didn't lose his power at his hair. His hair wasn't his power. His power was his heart. When he gave away his heart, when he gave up the promise and the commitment that he had made to God on the inside, those were just the outward signs of what was going on on the inside. And maybe the actual hair cutting was the moment, but he didn't lose his strength at that moment. He lost his strength when his soul became annoyed to the point of death, and he said, fine. Can you imagine the kind of living that allows you to lay with something that you know is going to kill you? In fact, it wants to kill you, but you still want it. This wants to kill me. It wants to destroy my relationships. It wants to destroy my relationship with God. It wants to define my identity instead of letting God define my identity. It wants to own me. It wants to enslave me. But I love it so much, I will tell it how to do it. And he surrendered his heart. And his soul is annoyed to the point of death. And he loses his strength. And then he lays in her lap and she cuts off his hair and in come the troops and he thinks he's gonna get up and overpower them like he's done every day of his life for the last 20 years, but something has changed. He's given away his heart and when he gave away his heart, he lost the power because he removed himself from the presence of God and they overcome him and the scripture says they put out his eyes 
and they enslaved him and they put him to work in the mill, turning the mill and grinding the flour, blind and enslaved. See, he went from division to no vision. He went from trying to live two lives to not being able to see any future for himself. Samson compromises. He crosses over the line where he can't even pretend anymore to be standing up for God. Now, this is a fascinating thing. As I studied this, and you'll see this in Soul Keeping, uh, John Orberg talks about this. There's a psychological effect that happens to people when we try to keep two competing ideas in our heart and in our mind all the time. When we try to believe one thing is true and one competing other thing is true. When we try to do that for too long, eventually we surrender one of those things. And the psychological effect is called this. It's called the what the hell effect. The what the hell, that's not a biblical term, that's not Pastor Mike being vulgar, that's the psychological term. Psychologists will diagnose this as the what the hell effect. Now here's the funny version of it. The funny version of it looks like this. You're on a diet, but there's a pie in the house. And you think, I'll just have a taste. And so you have a taste. Then you think, ah, taste didn't kill me, I'll just have a slice. So you have a slice. Then you think, who eats one slice of pie? So you have two slices. And about an hour later, you're buying another pie to hide the fact that you've destroyed that pie. And somewhere along the journey, you've crossed the line of the what the hell effect. Where you've made a decision, oh well, I don't care about the consequences anymore. What I really want is what this is. Let me take it a little more serious. Companies can do this. Entire cultures of businesses can do this. Enron did this. They're cooking the books. And you start off cooking the books and you've got a justification. Well, we got to cook the books because we got to get to this quarter and we got shareholders and we got responsibilities and it's okay, you know, and we didn't get caught and everything's still working and it's okay. And well, okay, now we're a little bit further along and that really worked out good for us. So let's do that again this time, but we'll push it up a little bit further and we'll move a little bit farther. And then about third, fourth time through, you're like, this is just what we do here now. And we're not even justifying it anymore. It's just the way that we operate. Nations can do this. We get passionate about a cause. We get passionate about something and we start behaving in a way that, that we start treating a, a people group or somebody else like they're less than and it starts off as it's justified whether well, they're dangerous or they don't look like us or they, they're in our way or we need that land or whatever and it starts off justified and we're saying, well, we're doing this but we're moving them over here and we're gonna take this and then we'll do this and, we'll do, and eventually it's like, I don't care what happens to them. We're just taking what we want and nations do this and individuals do this. Well, I know I shouldn't go to lunch with that woman just alone by myself, but, you know, we got work to do, and we're just going to make that work. And, well, yeah, you know, it was lunch, but, you know, we can get more done if we go to dinner. And, well, you know, dinner's okay, but, you know, it'll be fine. It's not a big deal if we go to a movie, and a movie's not a big deal. Well, you know what? I really don't care what happens next. And we cross the line. And that's what happens in the life of someone who holds two value systems at the same time for that long is eventually you cast away the thing that you're being dishonest about and you just embrace because our soul can't handle the tension of that dishonesty. It can't. Okay. Church people, can we be, can we, can we go somewhere? I'm going to bring it in close here for a second. I'll take the microphone away so it's not on the podcast. 
<laughs> no, I'm teasing. Can we just be honest about the fact that when we pray, especially when we're dealing with our mistakes and our behavior, that sometimes we're really dishonest in our prayer? Here's what I mean. We come to a place and we say, all right, God, I'm really sorry because I've been doing something I know I shouldn't be doing. I'm sorry I've been stealing. Sorry I've been looking at what I shouldn't be looking at. Sorry I've been eating, drinking, taking what I shouldn't be taking. I'm really sorry about that. And as we're saying those words, we know we have no intention of changing that behavior. As a matter of fact, you've already planned out when you're gonna do that behavior next. And you're not changing anything but you're having the conversation with God. Why are you having that conversation with God? Because you feel, come on now, like this is an important step in mine and God's relationship that I do this behavior and I apologize, even though I have made no decision in my life to actually change that behavior. Can I just say something? For our souls, that is a disintegrating, disintegrating pattern to get into. As a matter of fact, Ortberg would say, it is healthier to simply go to God and say, God, I sinned today. I'm going to sin tonight. I'm going to sin again tomorrow. Amen. At least you would be being honest with God, and that's a place to start. It would be healthier for your soul to be honest. Why? Because as you move into that place of integrity and honesty, as you move into that place, the Holy Spirit then has opportunity to interact with your soul and maybe out of that relational connectivity and connection with God maybe that would spark the change to release the bondage that you keep putting yourself into maybe just being integrous you see the soul needs a center it needs a center it needs a north. It needs you to be true. It needs you to be honest. It needs you to come into the presence of the living God and say, hey, I'm stuck and I need help and I need wholeness. And I know that I've planned to embrace this thing that it keeps on, and I know it wants to kill me. Help me, oh God, in my weakness. In my weakness, be my strength. And if I fall seven times, help me to get up. At least there would be integrity there. At least it would be honest. At least your soul would not be disintegrating. I'm gonna jump ahead. But I just want you to catch this. This is what sin does to us. It splits us apart. It forces us to pretend. It divides us. As long as I keep pretending, my soul keeps dying. As long as I keep pretending, my soul keeps dying. The longer I keep playing like it's okay, at least I didn't cut my hair, did everything else, my soul keeps dying. Peter tells us to live this way. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires. Why? Because they war against your soul. So how do we solve it? What do we do? I'm stuck, Pastor Mike. That's great. That's not been helpful. All you've done is point me to this reality. What am I supposed to do with this reality? You know what heals the soul? Confession. Confession is good for the soul. The soul is healed by confession. 
when we are honest and we're integrous, when we, I'm not talking about going to a priest and, and, and you know, that, that, I'm not a, that's just not what I'm trying to describe. I don't need 30 appointments this week for you to confess, although I'm happy to talk with you. Here's what I need. Here's what you need. I need an integrous, honest moment with God. This is where I'm at. And this is where my soul has been divided. This is where I've, I've made peace with a divisive thinking. I've allowed myself to live in two lanes. I'm living for God, but I'm stealing from work. I'm living from God, but I'm cheating. I'm living from God, but I'm looking at what I shouldn't be looking at. I'm living for God, but I'm taking what I shouldn't be taking. I'm living for God. Something has been dividing your soul. And being honest about that moment will begin the process of healing and restoring your soul. And here's the incredible thing. We're gonna end with communion and these gentlemen are gonna begin passing this out. I just want you to take a juice and and take a bread as they do that. They're gonna pass this out to you. Psalms 51.6. The scripture tells us, the psalmist says, that God desires truth in our innermost parts. Truth in our innermost parts is the thing that keeps us calibrated and integrous with God. It's the thing that lets us know, hey, maybe I don't have control fully of my mind right now. My mind keeps going where it shouldn't go. Maybe I don't have control fully of my body right now. My body keeps doing what I don't want. My will doesn't want it to do. At least what I can control is I can be integrous and honest with the Lord and say, this is where I'm struggling. This is where I'm weak. And Paul says, in your weakness, there can be incredible strength. Why? Because you learn to depend not on your strength, come on now, but on the strength of the living God. Paul says it's okay to boast about your weaknesses, not hide them. It's okay to boast and say, hey, I am so weak right now, but God continually shows up as I invite him into my world, as I invite him into my weakness, as I confess to him, this is where I've dropped the ball. This is where I haven't been consistent. This is where it hasn't been uh, 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 integrous and honest. So Jesus goes to the cross and establishes for us this ability to get into the presence of God and be honest. Prior to this, we couldn't do it. If we took our sinful mistakes into the presence of God, his holiness next to our whoops, it'd wipe us out. That power and that presence, it would just be too much. So Jesus says, let me pay the price so that you can be certain of one thing, that you're forgiven, that it's paid for, that it's bought, that it's not being held against you. God knew from the beginning of time who you are and what whiffs you would make. He's not shocked by it. He's not surprised. You haven't strayed so far that his grace and his mercy isn't sufficient to cover it. He's actually paid the price so you can get out of this bondage and he's waiting for you to be honest about where you're at so he can heal you, restore you and make you whole. So Jesus says, every once in a while you should remember that truth. And here's how you can do that. And he breaks some bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. As often as you get together and do this, remember I paid the price for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new promise, the new system for dealing with disintegration in your soul. And the new process, the new commitment, the new covenant says, you can come into the presence of God made completely whole, made completely clean, because I paid the price for you. 
So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me and we got just a few minutes left. And the band is gonna begin to just worship. But I'm gonna invite you not to sing in your worship just yet. I'm gonna invite you to just listen. And as they lead in worship, I'm gonna invite you to have an integrous, honest moment with the creator of your soul who breathed life into you in the moment. And I'm just gonna ask you before the Lord to be honest because the soul's healed by confession. And to just say, here's the state of my soul and here's the places where I've been double-minded. We talked about that last week. I've been dual-souled. I've tried to behave this way and believe this way. And here's the places where I've been weak, where sin has compartmentalized into my life. And I just wanna be integrous and honest with you. God, would you forgive me? Would you make me new the way your word says that you would make me new? And when you've done that, and I'm not gonna micromanage this, as we worship, I want you to take communion to simply say, God, I receive this incredible gift that you've given to me. When you've done that, you eat the bread, you take the juice, and you worship with us. Hallelujah. Oh, God. We just wanna have an honest, integrated moment with you. Holy Spirit, we recognized even in double-mindedness, you've still been faithful. How much more if we actually surrendered and trusted you with our lives? If we actually laid down and cast off the sin that would so in easily entangle us? And we don't do it because maybe we're afraid of the consequences. Maybe we're just afraid of leaving that behind and in this moment, God, we recognize the, the danger of trying to be double-souled or double-minded or hold those two things together. And we just, we just want to be honest. You know, in Samson's story, he's blinded chapter 16, and then it says they put out his eyes and they put him in the mill, but something happens in verse 22. It says, however, the hair of his head began to grow back after it was shaved off. And maybe someone in here just needs to hear this really powerful and profound truth from the scripture. Your strength is coming back. You felt weak. You felt like you couldn't overpower this thing. You felt like I, I, am, I'm, I, I am disempowered because of this. I've lost the presence and the power of God because of this. And the word of the Lord would simply tell you your strength is coming back. Your strength in your marriage is coming back. Your strength at work is coming back. Your strength in your relationships is coming back. The strength of your heart is returning because he's faithful. And so we have the opportunity, come on now, to experience strength again, power and authority again. You are not created to be disempowered and weak and blind and in the mill. There is a destiny and Samson ends up accomplishing his destiny despite all of those things. Why? Because God is still faithful. 
He's faithful to the promises that he gave you. That moment you first met him, he's been faithful since in the womb he started forming his plan for you and he cannot be faithless to himself. He will be faithful. So let's trust him. Let's be free. Let's be whole. And let's move from a place where we've been trying to live in two lanes. The enemy's been using that strategy for thousands of years to weaken the people of God. Not anymore. Your strength is coming back. God, we receive your promise. We receive the strength, the strength that comes from you so that we can be powerful again to accomplish what you've called us to accomplish. Lord, may the strength come back in our lives. May we begin to live in victory. May we look at the things that have entangled us in the past and may we recoil from those things that have been dangerous. Would you form new habits and patterns and behaviors? Would you break cycles? Would you bring freedom? Would you restore? Would you release by your grace, by your mercy, by your power? Your power is made perfect in our weakness. In those moments where our own flesh may fail, would you be the strength of our heart and our portion forever? We surrender to you. We trust you. We believe that nothing is impossible for he who believes. I pray that we'd move in that power. We'd see chains loosened. We'd see marriages restored. We'd see physical behavior altered. We'd see addiction broken in the lives of the believer. Why? Because we were honest and integrous before the creator of the universe and you showed up and you healed and you restored. Would you be greater, I pray, in each of our lives? Would we go from this place changed? Because your word is so clear that when we get into your will, when we come into the life and the body of Christ, we're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and freedom is available on the other side of that. It's your heart, and it was for freedom's sake that you came to make us free so we wouldn't carry this anymore, so we embrace the truth of what you came to do, and we move in that, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Restore us, revive us, be made greater in our life, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen, and amen. Go from this place and believe it. Be honest, be free, be restored. Have an incredible week in the Lord. God bless you, we love you.